Okay, got a thumb? We're, we're off in operation? Or we're supposed to be in operation? Okay, well, here we go. July the 10th, 2022, lecture discussion number 177 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1 through 3, and Genesis 15. Now, I, I have a couple of things to read here really fast. I've got to show you this. This was kind of, this was cool. Uh, it says, uh, to reward you for wearing out your textbook, this is a new King James Bible, Dimebox Dan. And so I got that in the mail and just absolutely thrilled. Let me show you what he did. And so I've got one of these now, and uh, I just, it says new on the front, so I guess that's for, and it's, uh, came with a, a picture, and it also uh, has a Berry Family Bible on it, so that's, oh, I should, might, maybe I shouldn't have done that, huh? Because uh, people will hunt him down now. But anyway, thank you so much. That's very cool. And, and I know why he did it, because as he points out, that I have wore out my textbook. And I'll show you that. This is what's left of it. Ah, i got to get it all out of here without knocking stuff over. Here's what's left of this one. It's beat up really badly. You can see most of it's missing in the back. And on the bottom, it's all frayed and torn to pieces. But what people don't know is that's the new one of mine. Here's my original, and you can you can't probably tell, but it's all covered in duct tape and, and rubber bands, and the whole thing will just completely come apart. And that's the one I began with uh, when we started Cliffside 25 years ago. So I I appreciate the updated uh, Bible because I am destroying the other one as well, which is kind of how I operate. But I was very appreciative of it, and thank you so much. And, uh, and now I got a, a hilarious letter, and this is an hilarious person. There's so many of you out there, and this is one that happens to be in Anchorage, by the way. Oops, I put that on the board. So she writes this. It's Robin from Anchorage, and she writes, "Holy schnitzel on a short, sharp stick, Batman. Hypostatic. Uh, I'm sorry, hypostatic union." Do you mean Christ is God, man? If, and so she goes on. I, I can't read all of it. It's just so good. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is the part that I really appreciated. Goodell's incomplete, incompleteness slash uncertainty principle added several pages to my extended book, or intended book, sorry. And so she's writing a book, and she's t- entitled it Urban Math, an Exposition on Applied Pedestrian Physics and Other Simple Thoughts. I looked up Goodell uh, on the WWW and found several all in the found several things, all in the field of physics and different ages. And there's a literal rocket scientist, a plasma guy, a mathematician, a physics guy, amazing minds. And then, and then she says this, thank you for going through this. And I, I don't know how to tell you how much I appreciate it when people recognize what I'm thinking, because I'm thinking Goodell's incompleteness theorem is so profound and so important to the church. And so, so she says, thank you for going through this. Every one of your lectures reveals God and his relationship with man in more light. Defining what we don't know sometimes enhances what we do know. Thank you, Robin. And I, and, and I really do appreciate that a, a great deal. And, and Dave says, hi, Robin. Okay. So that's very cool stuff for me. Keeps me going. Okay, so what did I say? July 10th, 2022, number 177. Uh, okay, we're remaining in this intermittent uh, schedule. You can see we're back on July the 24th. Dave and Terry can testify that we painted the entire front of the house uh, in the last week or so. It took us a long time. We had to do it by hand, and we did it in a, in a uh, cherry picker that got up 45 feet in the air. And, and that uh, is a challenge for us older people. And Lori only fell out four times, but, you know, she bounces good, and so things worked out great. All right, so, but we're still in this summer schedule. i got windows to do in the back. i got a deck to work on. Uh, we've got uh, we got to open up a wall and, and fix a closet up and lots of things like that coming and going. We have to hurry. It's, it's, it's already winter. The days are getting shorter. Anyway, so we're on the summer schedule. We'll be back the 24th of July. Uh, but all of that said, uh, nonetheless, we're going to be continuing in the Genesis 15 gleanings phase. I threw a bunch of Genesis 15 at you. Now I've got to go back 
there still exists a, a significant residue uh, to sift through. It's a mountain, actually, of material. And perhaps everyone who has listened to even a brief segment uh, of our little diversion into the undivided birds of Genesis 15, so all of you who have just caught a little bit, I hope you would have noticed the emphasis that I have placed upon the person of Melchizedek. I have. Uh, that's so important, I, I believe. As you would, you would know that if you'd listen, that this is a major thesis of mine. Indeed, it's the leading, it's the primary contention that I have in that uh, Genesis 15 is a shrouded piece of scripture. Now, all of the Bible is shrouded. He even says so. Uh, but I believe Genesis 15 has a greater significance because it's got an impenetrable veil. You can't see into Genesis 15 unless Genesis 15 will be completely locked up unless, unless, I'm sorry, not unless, unless, if and only if you begin with Melchizedek is Jesus Christ himself. If you don't have that peace, Genesis 15 stays underneath a shroud. Under, in the clouds. If you, you must believe that Melchizedek is Jesus Christ, that, he, that this is the infinite God of all things created, John 1, 1 through 4, and Colossians 1, 15 through 18, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, Revelation 1, 8. This is the infinite Aleph Tav that is standing in front of Abraham and the people that have been, been saved, if you will, have been rescued by Abraham. And then this king of Sodom, uh, that is somehow there. And you know that I believe that is Satan himself there. So, uh, you have to understand this infinite Aleph Tav aspect of Melchizedek. And of course, infinite Aleph Tav is an intentional redundancy. I, I put them together so people begin to understand the Aleph Tav in the Hebrew alphabet represents infinity. Okay, to rephrase a bit, Genesis 15 requires that Melchizedek presides over everything in Genesis 15, 1 through 19. And so that means every seemingly small detail that you read about in Genesis 15 is appointed and it's ordered by Jesus Christ himself who is standing right there as Melchizedek. They are the same. And again, another intentional redundancy here, ordered by Jesus Christ, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, Jesus Christ is a redundancy. That's what I'm trying to say. Abraham then is merely the vehicle he doesn't do anything on his own volition in the sense he is following what he is told to do. The author is the one who brought the body and the blood of Christ. And of course, that's Melchizedek back at Genesis 14, 18 through 24. And again, Matthew 26, 26 through 28, Christ brings his own body, doesn't he? Mark 14, 22 through 24, John 13, 21 through 30. Genesis 14, 18, 24 is the reason that Christ does all of those things in Matthew 26, 26 through 28, John 13, 21 through 30, Mark 14, 22 through 24. Those are your communion scriptures, Last Supper scriptures, Second Supper, if you remember from last, uh, from the last time we were together. Uh, let me say it again. Genesis 14, 18 through 24, where Melchizedek is bringing bringing uh, um, bread and wine, body and blood. That's the reason for John 13, 28. Now, what does that mean? What is John 20, uh, 13, 28 about? Now, you can look it up while I'm talking, but uh, hopefully you know that no one knew why Jesus Christ, God himself, infinite, gave the sop the piece of dipped bread which identifies the recipient of that sop as the guest of honor, no one knows the reason, no one has ever thought about or no one has ever published the reason that he did that. Why did he give the piece of honor, the dipped bread, the sop, to Judas? Judas Iscariot. And no one knew the reason, John John thirteen twenty eight. And no one knew why Christ says to Judas, who now has Satan inside of him, what you do, do quickly. Why did Christ do this? He's infinite God. He's in absolute authority over everything. And he, this is his intention, and that's what he did. And I submit that the reason that he did it is obvious. I think it's beyond obvious. I think that it is Genesis 14, 18 through 24. That's the reason. 
Again, I said before, there's a first supper and there's a second supper. The first supper and the second supper blend together. And they give information one to the other. The reason that he gave the sop to Judas is the same reason that Melchizedek did what at, at, 18, at Genesis 14, 18 to 24. What am I trying to say? I, I am. Let me go back over this a bit. Genesis 14, 18, 24 is repeated by Christ himself at John 13, 21 through 30, along with the explanations of the communion where he says, this is my body, this is my blood, drink this, eat this. All of that information, Matthew 26, 26 through 28, Mark 14, 24, or 22 through 24, all of that is predicated on the first supper, which is uh, Genesis 15, effectively, after the, uh, body, or the body and the blood was brought by Melchizedek. Why did Christ Melchizedek bring his body and blood symbols at Genesis 14, 18 through 24? Why did he do it? Essentially, there's a communion service there. Why did he have a communion service when he has the king of Sodom? Again, obviously Satan. He has a bunch of people that have been rescued. Uh, and there's this discussion between Abraham and the king of Sodom over the people and the, and the spoils. Christ brings a communion service there. Why? I, I'm going to give you a really quick answer. Because the freed people by Abraham, the saved people that Abraham brought back from, from bondage, from captivity, those people are there. And what do they need? They have been brought out. If you want to think of them, brought out of Egypt in captivity, that's exactly what happened. This is one of the first. Shed Alamelur is one of the first uh, uh, types of Antichrist, if not the first, that we can find in Scripture. These people were captured by him. They were in bondage. And they were freed by Abraham. And, and so now here comes Christ bringing a communion service. Having a communion service. He broke the bread. Who did he give the sop to? I got to, yeah, Obviously he gave it to the king of Sodom. And that's why he gave it to Judas. Uh, he's identifying Judas in, in John 13, 28 through 30. The people that freed by Abraham needed to be redeemed. And what is the price of redemption? What do you have to have to be redeemed? You have to have Christ's blood. The body and the blood of Christ. That's salvation. That's the bread and wine. So we're having a communion service because I have freed people that are never going back into captivity because Abraham refused the, the he refused to give them back. He said, you cannot buy them from me. You cannot buy salvation. So all of that is wrapped up there. That's why the communion service. And again, when you look at Christ saying, take this, this is my blood. How much does it cost? You can't pay for it. Again, the, the, the Aleph Tov, the infinity, all of that aspect is there. The, those of you who do not think that Melchizedek is Christ, how did, my, how did Melchizedek know to bring the body and the blood to people who had been saved from captivity and were under threat of going back into captivity if, if they're given to the king of Sodom? How did he know that the right thing to do was bring bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ? Well, that's easily answered if you know that it's Christ himself. That's the only thing that makes sense. Anyway, the realization that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate, infinite second person of the triune Godhead, uh, Proverbs 30, verse 4. When you recognize that that's who he is, and that there is no interval between Genesis 14:24 and Genesis 15:1, it goes immediately to 15:1. There is no time period there, in my view. When you have that in your mind and you've got control of it, that's going to that's going to place the students of Scripture, those of you who are studying Genesis 15, you're now going to be on the path to unlocking the mysteries of Genesis 15. Nothing else will work. If you're wrong on Melchizedek, you're going to be wrong all the way through Genesis 15. That's what I'm trying to say. Nothing else will suffice. Genesis 15 will not reveal itself without starting with the blood and the body and the body of Christ, the body and the blood. And knowing that that is Christ himself at the first supper. And that he does everything. He replicates everything and puts it all together at the second supper. 
If you don't know that that is Christ, then Genesis 15 is just going to be another thing you, you, you read through quickly, you don't understand, and you move along. Which is a shame. That's a terrible shame. My water. Now, with that said, again, and, and I know it's tiresome to keep being bludgeoned with this, uh, but you'll thank me later. Once you have it, then like I said, it's just almost amazing what you begin to figure out on Genesis 15. So we got all of that. That's one of the gleanings. I had to just keep pounding away at it. Just uh, I know it's annoying, as I said, uh, but uh, just in case somebody's tuning in for the first time, I got it. I got it done again, and I know how important it is. So, <coughs> excuse me. The second thing we're going to do today is what is the connectivity of Adam uh, and Abraham? I have a relationship between Adam and Abraham, and everybody's going, "What? Huh?" I've said uh, throughout my so-called career that Adam is welded to Noah. Uh, the animals were brought to Adam to name, and animals were brought to Noah to be saved. And, and Christ, of course, gives all of the saved a new name and a white stone and hidden man, manna. So I, I have all of that. I've said that before. And I think everybody knows that. But Adam is also unsurprisingly very much attached to Abraham. And where do you suppose that is? Of all the books about Abraham, or I'm sorry, all the passages about Abraham, one of them connects dramatically to Adam. And which one do you think it is? Well, duh. It's Genesis 15. You see, the Bible is the ultimate cause and effect manuscript. What I mean by that is that all conditions and events in scriptures are traceable to a cause. And Clarence Larkin, to reference the most prominent theologian who elucidated, elucidated uh, this condition of the scripture, he had this famous thing that he did that uh, was uh, just extraordinary. He mapped out, traced out, tracked out, whatever you want to use, the trail of the serpent, he called it. So everywhere he found, he, he found this trail, this path that is being done uh, and, and again, Larkin tracked and traced it. Every biblical Satan reference in the Bible, and he placed them into an order. It's just a, an absolute brilliant understanding. And, and you know, everybody knows, I hope everybody knows, that Satan's fall is outlined at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. That's when you see Satan's fall. So now where do you go from there? And Satan's fall is likely responsible for the darkness that is divided at Genesis 1-2. So this is where the trail begins. That's the source of the river of evil, if you want to think of it that way. Let me just, just give you an idea how he did it. Larkin did it. He just, he just started here and he went through the whole Bible like this. All the way to Revelation 20. And what was here? Larkin put Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Genesis 1-2. That's an order. So it would go like this, one, two, three, and there would be there would be Genesis one, two. That's how he did it. And I call it the river of evil. I use the metaphor of a river because all rivers have a source. They have an inception. They have a beginning. You can walk and find the beginning of the Mississippi River, right? You can actually find it. There's a specific location that can be determined. At least, uh, at least it can be reasonably isolated. You can say that is where the river started. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, that is where Satan fell. Satan was created, and that's where he fell. It's described, the fall of Satan. The, the creation of Satan, that he was absolutely beautiful. He's full of the brim with wisdom. And he got what? He got proud, and he decided to do something evil. I'm proposing that God's word is intentionally constructed to align with a flowing river. So when you read this book, it flows. It just works its way from a beginning to an end. Revelation is the end. Genesis is the beginning. And everything in between is giving you a description 
of that flow between Genesis and Revelation. And Joshua, sorry, Joshua 3.16 is, the, is an exclusive example of the Jordan River. In other words, the Jordan River is the river of judgment, Jordan, the river of judgment that descends, that empties into the Death Sea. So Jordan, and guess what city it comes from? You know what it is, I've told you many times, 3.16 Joshua. It originates, death and judgment, the river of death and judgment that descends into death, begins with, the, the, the commencement of it is at the city of Adam. So at the city of Adam, judgment and death flows from Adam all the way through to the new city of Jerusalem, Romans 5, 12 through 14. And then there's that river of life that is in Ezekiel 47, Revelation 22. Flows from him who is life itself. When Christ is in the millennium, the river of life comes out of him, out of the holy of holies where he is sitting. And the uh, river of pure water of life in Revelation 22, also in the new city of Jerusalem, is coming out of Christ. John, is, I'm sorry, <coughs> John 11:25 and John 14:6 tells you that he is life and truth. And rivers are first mentioned uh, in the Bible in Genesis 2:20. I'm sorry, 2:10. That's the river that flows out of Eden. So you have three rivers in the Bible. The river that flows out of Eden, the, I'm sorry, four, counting the Jordan River. You have the Jordan River. You have the river that flows out of Eden. You have the Ezekiel 47 River. And you have the, the river of pure water of life in, in Revelation, in the new city of Jerusalem. So there, there's this river that comes out of the Garden of Eden. And what does it do? You ever read it? Hardly anybody does. Don't feel bad. It divides into four parts. So God announces that there's a river. And he divides that river into four pieces. And each division has a name. And so you have these rivers. The Pishon, the Hion, the Hidekel, the Euphrates. And each river is attached to land. Havilah, Kush, Assyria. So I have four rivers, but only three of them are attached. To land. Why isn't the Euphrates? Why four divisions and three lands? What's four plus three? It's probably a mistake. You know, if he, he, he said, well, okay, this river is attached to that land, this river is attached to this land, this river is attached to this land, and I just forgot about the Euphrates. Why isn't the Euphrates attached to any land? In, in, in Genesis 4.10. Now, I know that's pre-flood, and the, and the rivers that we're calling the Euphrates today are unlikely to be that river. But then also notice, once you got, once you're working on those rivers, you notice that the two trees are subsequent to the four rivers. So he first gives you the four rivers, he divides the four rivers, and then here comes the two trees. So, like I'm saying, there is a trail here. There's a flow. There's an order. And what are the trees? What's the first thing he did with the trees? The trees are divided. I have the tree of life, and I have the tree of death, the surely dry, don't call me surely, the surely die tree. Obviously, the why of the two trees is related. It's traceable to a cause. There's two trees there. Why are they, where are they, what river, what flow caused those two trees to be put into the midst of the Garden of Eden? What, what caused the Garden of Eden to be an organic garden with humanity and, and I'm sorry, and animals in it. What what caused Adam? If you want to think of it that way. Now again, I know that God is outside of time, so I'm saying it in a human humanistic manner. When He does things, it's all the time is not an issue. But we see we're inside of time. We see time as it applies. He does not. So the why of the two trees is related to something. It is caused by something. And I'm going to suggest to you that it is caused by Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. That's why there are two trees. How is it that those things cause two trees? What is doing that? The two trees are in Eden. 
and only uh, the tree of life, Revelation 22.2, is in the new city of Jerusalem. So what's the obvious question here? At the end of the river, whatever river you wish this to be, but the metaphor of the river, at the end of this, I have of the two trees, only one of them makes it into the new city of Jerusalem. So why isn't the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why isn't it in the new city of Jerusalem? Why is there only one tree? I guess what I'm trying to say. The obvious question is obvious. Why are the two trees in Eden? Why was there a tree of certain death? Because that's what he said. Eat of that tree, certain death. Absolute total poison. Not instant death, by the way we think, but instant death by the way he thinks. When you talk about God, how he defines death and life. Why was there a tree of certain death in the Garden of Eden? Something caused that, is what I'm trying to say today. What was it? Was it a someone? And if it's a someone, why did he want it? Or why did he cause it? How did he cause it? What was his motive? Did he know he was going to cause it? And yes, for those of you who read the last page of every mystery novel first that you've ever had, I am suggesting confidently that the events of Genesis 14, 18 through 24 and Genesis 15 are descendant from whatever is the root cause of placing the tree of certain death in the midst of the garden. Does that make any sense to anybody? I'm telling you that Genesis 14, bringing the blood and the body, and Genesis 15, which is this incredible ceremony, that comes from the cause of what placed the tree of certain death into the garden. Because you have to ask yourself, why is there a tree of certain death in the garden? Well, it doesn't seem to make sense. But it does make sense. Now, to put it simply, Adam and Abraham are both within the same line. So when you put Adam, when you have your Adam line, this is Adam. Well, Adam is going to go right into Abraham. Especially Genesis 15. And this is where chess is once again valuable. I, I can't tell you to do this enough. Teach your children to play chess. Somebody Get somebody to teach them to play chess. It'll change how they think. It'll make them... It'll instruct children especially to develop their critical and logical thinking. And they'll be able to style, navigate all kinds of things. But the Bible is incredible because chess is all about lines. If you want to think of it, it's all about rivers. It's all about lines. I can trace things out with chess. I can actually annotate it. I can figure out everything that happened. I can record every single move and see how one move affects another. Not only does it affect moves that I'm going to make, but it also affects the moves the opponent is going to make. And so at the highest levels, chess players memorize and they evaluate lines in order to anticipate what will eventuate from a singular move. Sometimes those lines are 15, 20 moves. Sometimes they're more. I do chess puzzles, and I'm pretty good at them. I'm not great. I'm really good if the chess puzzles resolve within four or five moves. But they start getting up to 20 moves. Woo. I cannot get, I can't do those. I can maybe, if I'm really lucky, I can find the first 10. But I can't find the next 10. So the more complex puzzles are extraordinarily difficult. But there are people who have trained themselves to figure things out at that level. And they become incredible, uh, just intellects. Sometimes, uh, again, let me just say this. 400 positions are possible after each player makes a single move. So the game is, if I go, uh, I go pawn d4 and they go pawn uh, d5, there are 400 possible moves that each player can do after one move in chess. There are nine million variations after three moves. That's how fast it gets complicated. And this ability to locate and to visualize which move will connect to which counter response takes years of practice, takes years of study. And that's why I think you need to teach kids chess. Because that's, guess who wrote his book that way? Abraham sacrificed 
He cut in two, Genesis 15, the three-year-old heifer, the three-year-old goat, and the three-year-old ram. Okay? To say it more so plainly, Abraham killed these three three-year-old animals. And who provided those animals? God provided them. Now, a pattern that's a pattern that providing animals to be killed, God has done it before. Not before Abraham. Well, yes, before Abraham. He certainly did it with Noah. It's a pattern with Noah, Genesis 6.19, Genesis 7.9. And it's repeated at Genesis 22.14 where the angel of the Lord, that's Christ Himself again, provided an... Oops, did I lose? Something happened. Okay, no, it's the... It's the uh, Oh, battery died. Oh, my goodness. Well, that tells you that we're out of business. I feel like we're an electric car. Okay. Let me see. Do you know how what kind of batteries they are? They're double A's. I have double A's. They're in the office. I know where they are. You were hunting there for a week. You want me to go get them? Yes. Okay. Sorry, folks. We'll be right back. Test, test, test. How about that? Look at us go. I hear somebody coming out of the room. Okay. Oh, let's see. Let me back up here. Uh, Abraham cut into a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, and a three-year-old ram. He, he killed them. It's very important to know that he killed those animals. That God provided those animals. Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, provided those animals and said to Abraham, cut them in two. Keep all of that in mind. And that patterns with Noah. Again, Noah, as soon as he, as soon as he, uh, uh, he builds an altar, right? As soon as he can get to land, as soon as the floodwaters recede. And what did he do? He killed animals. So it's repeated at uh, Genesis 7-9. And then 22-14 where the ram caught in the thorns is killed there by Abraham again. So Abraham's killing rams. They, the angel of the Lord provided another three-year-old ram to replace Isaac. The caught in the, in the thorn ram. So Abraham then kills a second ram. And both rams testify of Jesus Christ, as you know. That is why, and here's your line, that is why Jesus Christ makes sure that he gets a crown of thorns on his head at his crucifixion. It all goes back to that three-year-old ram that Abraham kills in Genesis 22. So when you begin to recognize that's how the Bible is designed, it's got all of, it's got all of this cause and effect to it. And sometimes that cause is is thousand years before the effect, or many thousands. So the crown of thorns transfers to the ram caught in the thorns, which originates from where? Because that's not where it originates. Everybody says the crown of thorns, not everybody, most people don't even know. The crown of thorns is clearly connected to the ram caught in the thorns in Genesis 22. But where did it actually originate, the crown of thorns? Where, 
Pardon me? That's right. It's the garden. It's, it is Genesis 3.18. Adam sentencing at his trial. Toil and what? Thorns. So now you put those thorns together. You're like me. You can solve a, a three-line puzzle. You put those three together. Now can you get to the next 50? Because that's how it works. Obviously, Noah killed animals, Genesis 8, 20 through 21, and God spoke at that event. The first killing of the animals that were on the ark. That's the first time animals were killed after the flood. They come off the ark, they've survived the flood, and what happens to them? They're killed by Noah. And God speaks. Again, I've got to repeat that. It's the first to die on the post-flood earth. So that makes them extremely significant. God provided them again. And God said this there at that particular, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. I will never do that again. Let me repeat it. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. That's a direct reference to what? Genesis 3.17, where he says, I will, I will curse the ground for your sake. He repeats it right there at, at the end of the flood when the animals are being killed again. Now that 317 is cursed is the ground for your sake. And that's an incredible mystery. What exactly, what is the totality of the meanings then of Genesis 317 and Genesis 821? How is the cursing of earth, of the earth for man's sake? How is that? He cursed the earth for man's sake. How does that work? What does it mean? How do the animals connect with it? Are, are the animals killed for mankind's sake? There's your question. And tremendously complicated is this cursing of the earth for man's sake. And we've covered a bit of this previously. The key element is, of course, is that Adam was not cursed. He was not cursed. He was not cursed because of many reasons. But the biggest reason is, is he didn't go to the tree of life after he was in a position of sin. He, he nor the woman did that. So they were not cursed. The earth was cursed. And the serpent Satan, the serpent of the old, Revelation 12, 9, Genesis 3, 14, he was greatly cursed, wasn't he? More than all of the animals, both the angelic uh, beings that have animal characteristics and the earthly animals. And, and, and it says that he is cursed again more. And what's the obvious question there? Cover this a little bit, but now I'm back at it. He's cursed more. How more is more? How is more? That'll make sense later, I hope. Anyway, all of that to say, Adam must have killed the animals that the angel of the Lord provided. Adam killed animals, is what I'm telling you. Noah killed animals. Abraham killed animals. They all killed animals. That's what they have in common. It's incredibly interesting, in my view. Adam and the woman were supposed to die here, but they were not slain. Substitutes were slain. And I'm presenting that the river flows, the line to Noah and then to Abraham, begins with Adam killing the animals in Genesis 3.21 because two animals were killed. And we've talked about it already. The likelihood that those were lambs is, is I think, a certainty. So Adam has to kill those animals. And, and, and of course, what does God do? And interestingly, uh, just note the order in all of this. Adam renames the woman. He takes her from, he doesn't call her woman. He renames her to Eve, the mother of all living. Uh, All living what? All living what? Just human beings? Well, we got animals in there. But he renames her the mother of all living and then two innocent animals, Romans 5.14, are killed. I'm going to name, this is the order. I'm going to name her the mother of all living, and then I'm going to kill these two animals. And he had to kill them. I, I, I want you to imagine Adam, who has named these animals. He's now got to kill two of them. And who selected who, which ones to be killed? You have to go through that process. Did God say kill those two? 
Or did he say select two and kill them? So think about all of that if you can, just while I move along. The angel of the Lord makes two tunics of skin and clothes Adam and the mother of all living. What's he saying by doing that? What's he teaching? As you know, the fig leaf coverings were not acceptable in this situation. They wouldn't suffice. They weren't able to cover sin. The body and the blood. There we are again. Body and blood. Bread and wine. Obviously, the bodies were killed, aren't they? Because two two, two tunics of of uh, of skins were made by God. That's the mantle of Eve and the mantle mantle of Adam. And there are people that have spent lifetimes tracing the covering of Eve and Adam through the Scripture. Charlie Stearman and uh, J.R. Church being probably the most prominent that I'm aware of. But I'm saying again, the body had to die here. So the body must die and the blood must be shed in order to cover sin. That is what he's teaching. The blood of the innocent. This is what God is saying. The blood of the innocent. The fig tree is not an innocent reference. The fig tree is a cursed reference. Matthew 21.18, Mark 11.12-21. It withers, the fig tree does. Zechariah 11.17, 1 Kings 13.4. We're back to the withered arm of the Antichrist figure. And all withering is a curse. All fig tree references descend from Genesis 3-7. First time fig trees are in the Bible. That's the beginning of that river of the fig tree. And it goes, as I point out, through the, through the king and, uh, whose arm is withered when he points at the unnamed prophet. Uh, the fig tree that Christ curses. All of that goes back to Genesis 3-7. And Genesis 3.21, because Genesis 3.7 and 3.21 are connected, are they not? Isn't it obvious? Because he has to remove the fig tree, or the fig leaves from Adam, and he has to replace it, or he intends to replace it, with something that is not, is the opposite of the fig. And God rejects covering of sowed, sown, Fig leaves, much to the, to the great dismay of the works-based, law-based salvation vendors that are out there. He rejects that. He, he strips your fig leaf stuff off of you. You could sew them all together all day long. It won't work. He's taking them off of you. He's going to rip them off. They're worthless. They're a curse. And these guys never, and women too, they never seem to diagnose the implications of the removal of the sown who sewn, who sewed them together? How did he do it? It's works of his what? He sewed them together with what? His hands. He used something to make these coverings with. And God says, no. Anything that you make can't cover sin. And he removes the fig leaves and those, and, and, and those cover. I could digress rant here. I could go into a diatribe against work-based salvation. And works-based salvation is what? That's a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. Yes, indeed. It's for morons who have oxy. Now, I, I, I will pretend to be mature and I will resist it for now for the first time ever, but I could really go off here. And they never see the implications of the sown fig leaves and how the figs now trace the line of the figs, if you wish, the trail of the figs, how they traced it, to cursing, to death. Okay. If, I gotta look at the time. How am I doing? Wow. Did, what time did we start? Oh my gosh, gotta hurry now. If there is a lineal, linear, I'm sorry, linear path of Satan through history, through biblical recorded history, and there is, if there's that, Finding Satan in Scripture, very valuable enterprise. Got to do it. So when you find that there is this linear path of Satan through history, then obviously, because the obvious is obvious, there's going to be a corresponding, there's going to be a collinear. Some might describe it as the reciprocal. That would be fair. But I'm going to have, if i got a path of Satan, what else am I going to have? Something's going to go with it. What is it? 
it's going to be the path of Christ. So if I have a path or a trail or a trace of, the, of Satan, I'm going to have the exact same thing with Christ. To recast the supposition here, Satan is intent on counterfeiting every aspect of God's solution to sin and death. He's going to do everything. He's going to try to He's going to figure out what it is and he's going to make something that is an image of it. And that image, of course, is contaminated. It's poisoned. The lamb slain before the foundation of the, of the creation is God's solution to sin and death. And Satan is going to counterfeit that. Revelation 13.8 Why does Satan counterfeit everything? What's his reason for doing it? We should know why. Consider that Satan is a finite. Therefore, he is a limited created being. He is a created thing. Which means it's impossible for Satan to portray infinity. He can't counterfeit infinity. Of all the things that he would want to counterfeit, the one that he can never counterfeit is infinity. He also cannot counterfeit the triune Godhead. He tries. He has a confederacy of himself. He has a triad. But it's impossible to counterfeit infinity. He also cannot counterfeit the hypostatic union. Though he tries. That's him in the, in the Antichrist, right? So he has these ridiculous things that are obviously not true, but they work. Okay? So we should know why he's doing it. Now Satan, again, sends us into Goodell's incompleteness theorem because of infinity. A finite framework or structure cannot prove or refute an infinite system. It just can't do it. That's the fundamental of Goodell. That's why Robin is so proud of him. Because it's extraordinary. I'm really thrilled that people are getting it out there, especially people in Anchorage. So there's somebody in Anchorage that, uh, that understands Goodell and completeness theorem. Yay. Truth can only be proven by a mind that has the capacity to accumulate and process and evaluate infinite possibilities and probabilities. That's the only way you can prove anything is true. You can say it is true. You can believe it is true. You can have a small sample of truth that, that it complies with, but you can never know that it's true and you can never prove it's true unless you have all the possibilities and all the probabilities and everything in between. And only an infinite mind can do that. Satan, to emphasize the point, we, a point, cannot prove anything to be true. He is incomplete. As are we. And angels and animals. Jesus Christ is not incomplete. He is complete. See the problem for Satan? So why is he doing this fanciful nonsense? He's got a plan. It's not a stupid plan. And it obviously works to a certain degree. Jesus Christ is complete, which is why he is the only one who can be called what? The truth. So when he says, I am the truth, he is saying, I am the only one complete. Now the Godhead, of course, the triune Godhead. That's a triune statement that he makes. So you understand that. He is the proven truth. And God knows what is true because he alone can prove truth. And his infinite mind is capable of locating exceptions to an intellection. And Satan can't do that. Satan can never know what's true. He can believe what's true. See the difference? You can't know, you can believe. And you can believe someone who knows. Now we're back in 15.6 of Genesis. Therefore, Satan is reduced to approximation. He can give you give a disfigured representation of truth. That's the best he can do. And that's what he does. Anyhow, locating and examining Satan's lie that leads to certain death is a value in that we can apply the wide gate characteristics to death Remember these two you know, gates now in Matthew 13 that we've been talking about. And I'm, I'm trying to pick all this stuff up today and get it all in a nice little bow and I can never do it. But if we look at the wide gate and we can look at the characteristics of the wide gate, uh, we can now apply those characteristics that are applied to death. We can use those to accurately assign the inverse. And that way we can look at the elements of the narrow gate of life. It's simple math because there's always simple math. We can look at what the, the wide gate is and we can transfer that, make it a, a, a reciprocal and apply it to the narrow gate. hope that made sense. <coughs> Note that the applicatory relationship of the trail of the serpent and the path of Christ to the two trees of Genesis 2.9 and Genesis 2.17. Both 
the, the trail of the serpent and the path of Christ converge at the two trees. And therefore, they also converge at the two gates. Now, I don't have time to read Matthew 7. I don't have time to flip through it. We're running out of time, but I'll give you this. It reads essentially, For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to the second death. Well, that's the tree of certain death, isn't it? So you can see how the wide gate is certain death. The tree of certain death is certain death. Certain death will be certain death. They will be the same thing. So we see the two trees, the path of Christ and the path of Satan, both lead, one leads to the tree of life, one leads to the gate of life, the other leads to certain death, certain death. And broad is the way that leads to the second death. Because narrow the gate And guarded is the way which leads to eternal life. And those finding it are few. That's what Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says. Now notice there are two ways here. Boy, we've got two trees, we've got two ways, we've got two gates, we've got all these twos again. The way to certain eternal death and the way to certain eternal life. Notice that I said it's certain and it's eternal life. And again, as God defines life and death, why are there so few who find the narrow gate? There are few. The narrow path. It's a narrow path to a gate. How few is few? When you look at Revelation 7-9, Revelation 19-14, and the likelihood that the new city of Jerusalem somehow is an infinite structure and can hold an incredible amount of saved people. And Jesus Christ, the infinite God, is inside that structure. He's in the city. It's his house. It's his dwelling. He's there. Got you. Thank you. The occupants of the new city of Jerusalem are uncountable. Only God can number them. And of course, they're human, they're animal, and they're angel. And they're, get this train through. Should have pulled the battery out of that thing today, huh? We are out of, out of synchrony here. My point is, is that, yea, a point, we a point. Few is a relative term, isn't it? When God says few will find the narrow gate, you gotta ask how few is few? How many is few? Then, like I said, I see an uncountable number saved in Revelation 7-9. And the city of Jerusalem is this massive structure that appears to be an infinite structure. And the likelihood that it is an infinite structure is absolutely obvious, I think. So the key word in Matthew 7-14 is not the one all the theologians pound on. They say the only few we're going to find is only going to be me and a couple of guys I know. The rest of you, you're out of luck. God, God has a plan of salvation with just a very few people make it, and I'm one of them. That's how they, that's what they teach. You can go listen to them. It's really that insane. They do it every Sunday. You're saved. I'm saved. Give me money. You take, I'll take your money, and I'll spend it on things you don't even know about. And we're all saved, and we're in a club, and nobody can get in the doors but us. That's what they do. They're the gatekeepers. They think they're the keeper of the narrow gate. They are not. God have mercy on them when he brings them in front of him. The key word in Matthew 7.14 is not few as they all think it is. The central words are guarded and find. Find. You have to find it. Some translations have difficult is the way. The Greek does not support difficult. It's not there. That's somebody's, uh, uh, that's somebody's concept. Supposition. I have told you that the the narrow gate, if you want to think of it that way, is guarded. It means reinforced. It means more correctly girded. So that's what the word is. Why is one gate guarded and protected, and the other gate is just come on through? There's no guard here. There's no gate. Or I mean, there's no stopping anybody from coming here. But there's somebody guarding and protecting that gate. That results in more questions. Why is the narrow gate girded as if it is in a war? Because that's what we're talking about. You gird yourself for battle. So I have a gate that's girded for battle. I answered the question within the question because what am I? I'm the HDRP. And so I just gave you the answer in the question. It is a war. Satan and his angels have rebelled against God. They intended to unleash chaos and inflict destruction and death. That's what they wanted as God defines death. Another question, why? 
Why did one-third of the angelic hosts choose evil? And the most complex answer is not usually thought to be an intricate uh, labyrinthine uh, answer, but it is. It is this Genesis 15.6 issue. That's the answer to why they chose evil. Genesis 15.6, what's the answer there? What does 15.6 say the answer is to, to evil? Why some choose evil and some do not? The answer is belief. The fallen horde of angels did not believe God with respect to something. What is it that they did not believe? They replaced the truth with the lie, Second Thessalonians 2, uh, 10 through 12, Romans 1, 25. They did not believe. I cannot repeat this enough. They did not believe. They did not believe. What is it that they did not believe? We know who they did not believe, right? What did they not believe about who they did not believe? This is believing God. 11.25 of John is a fundamental. Christ says, do you believe this? Do you believe me? It's a fundamental. It's probably the fundamental. Salvation for everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. So yes, it is the fundamental. It is the salvific principle, as I've said. It's belief. Why is the salvific principle belief? Why isn't it something else? It's not something else. That's the only one it is. There's only one principle. Belief. 15.6 Genesis. So why? Why is it that way? Again, this is God's method. Why is it his method? The truth and the lie. They replace the truth with the lie. The truth is not a thing. The truth is a person, an infinite person. It's Jesus Christ. It's one of his names. The truth is the name of Jesus Christ, the God-man. The lie is the name of the Antichrist, the false imitation of Christ, the Satan-man. So Christ guards and protects the narrow gate, Numbers 22, 22 through 26. He's there guarding this gate of Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Christ reinforces, makes the narrow path gate able to withstand the forces that seek to destroy it. Obviously, if Satan were able to damage, shatter the belief gate, and it's impossible for the belief gate can the belief gate can't be erased, it can't be eradicated, it can't be impacted. Because it is protected by who? He even see, he tells you who's protecting it, who girded it for battle. If it were to be able to be destroyed, then all is lost. Salvation it would not be secured. Where am I going now? If you say that salvation is not secured, then you're saying that the one who guards the gate of salvation is not good enough and strong enough and powerful enough to keep that gate from being destroyed. That's your position. That, what's the word I want? What's, there's a word. It rhymes with stupid. You, you can't defend that position theologically. But they do. Every day, don't they, Dave? Uh, hopefully everyone has observed that the doctrine of eternal security is enclosed in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, and Numbers 22, 22 through 26. Uh, you can see that. Do they see it? Do they want to find it? They don't. They don't want to. When I say they, I mean them. Next easy question. Not really. It's a fake easy question. E- easy is a relative term. Who are those who search for the protected gate and who are those who find it? Now, is there people who search for the protected gate? Do they always find it? Or do they search for it and they don't find it? Oh, I didn't find it. That's your question for today. Theologically, it's a theological question. It's a doctrinal question. If you find yourself, oh, that's not that's poorly word, sorry, so the word. If you are searching for the, the narrow gate of belief, uh, in Christ Jesus. If you're searching for it, do you always find it? Yes or no? It's a binary question. We'll answer that next week. Is there any somebody out there who, who's searching diligently for, for Jesus Christ who doesn't find him? Joel 2.32. Never mind. I gave the answer to the, uh, to the question in the question. Okay, second easy question. Who are those who do not go through the gate of death? Because a few is not all. Can we agree with that? When I ask you how many is few... We know few is not all. <coughs> so, who are those who do not go through the gate of death but cannot search for the gate of life? I answered that question right there, didn't I? My gosh. Cannot search for the gate. That would be somebody that we all know about. That's the instantly saved. They cannot search, can they? They cannot find anything. They're babies. They're children. They, they do not go th- through the gate of death 
they are instantly saved, but they cannot search for the gate of life. Does that make any sense to anybody? I hope it does. But it's also those who did not sin. That's the animal kingdom of Romans 5.14. The innocents who did not sin. 5.14 Romans. So that answers the instantly saved question. And when you answer the instantly saved question, that leads to the fake easy question. Who are the few who are searching? They're not the all. They're the few. I have the all and I have the few. Who are the few who are searching who find the belief in Christ's gate? They find it. Few find it. But they find it. Once again, I answer that question in the question, how does he do it? How does he keep doing it? The few are fewer than the great uncountable multitude total that ultimately are citizens of the new Jerusalem. Which explains why the angels rejoice, Luke 15.10. It's not just a free issue. It's a math. There's always math. The angels have more joy, Luke 15.7, over one searching sinner. Notice I have a searching sinner. What's he searching for? He's searching for that belief gate. The truth of belief. The salvific principle. The angels have more joy, Luke 15.7. And who says this? Christ says this. Over one searching sinner who finds belief in Christ than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, that's an amazing statement. I brought that up before. I got 99 just persons who need no repentance. And of course, they represent, uh, who are these just persons that need no repentance? I gave you that answer already. Who are they? You can do this. This is chess. I've moved here. You've moved here. And I did that. Knight F6. Now, what did you do? Who are these just person persons that need no repentance. Because the angels say, okay, the, yes, ma'am, you got it. Raise your hand and go, yay, me. <laughs> if you didn't hear her, she said, these are the children and the animals. They need no repentance. Why not? Why don't they need to repent? Why doesn't a baby need to repent? Why don't animals need to repent? But there's your math, 99 to 1. And that explains the lost coin parable. For some reason, it is few who search for Christ. Why is that? Why is it that few? Why is it there are many that are searching for Christ? But there's only few. How few is few? There's a, few is a lot. We think few is a little bit, but it's not. Few is a lot. It's just, uh, few is not all. Again, let me repeat that. Is it the Psalm 10.6 argument? The wicked said in his heart, I shall never be in Adversity. Psalm 10.13 Why do the wicked renounce God? I could say, why do the wicked uh, not believe God? He has said in his heart, the wicked, God will not require an account. So why is there few people who are searching for Christ? Because they do not believe they will be judged. They do not believe that they will be held to account I ask this question so many times in my so-called career. Does God have the right to rule over you? And they say no. Do you believe him or not? No, I don't believe him. There's this caricature of God that he's a sadist. That's Christopher Hitchens. If you, want you ought to read his brother, though. His brother is amazing. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway. Uh, Here's what God says. Arise, O Lord, to this Psalm 10.13. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, God will not require an account. And God responds, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. It's the humble who are the few, ultimately. Christ is the hand of God. He is identified as the hand of God. He's the angel of the Lord. Exodus 6.1, Joshua 4.24. Psalm 26, 1 Peter 3.22, Romans 8.38. He is the hand of God. You have to know that. when he, so he says, lift up your hand, that he's saying, lift up Christ. Now that's how you fight all of these battles. You lift up Christ. So the trail of Christ is to pl- be placed... I should back up a second. Exodus, uh, oh gosh. Ecclesiastes 12.13-14. The conclusion of the whole matter. What does he say? Believe God. Fear God. 
believe him. For God will bring every work into judgment. That's what Solomon said. Every work into judgment. So you're sowing fig leaves out there. Hang on work. So the trail of Christ is the place is to be placed alongside in contrast to the trail of the serpent. But look at both of them. Here's your move. You're, you're playing white. Your opponent's playing black. You're going to know every time black moves, you've got to know why he's moving and what is he doing. One more time. Uh, make him stop. I can hear little kids screaming. He won't stop, Mom. Melchizedek and Satan intersect. They converge. Every time Christ comes and does something, you can always find Satan. I believe you'll see Satan there. Therefore, what do we now know? If Satan is there with Melchizedek, who's Melchizedek? Make him stop. Why does Satan show up when Christ appears? For example, Satan is at the battle of Armageddon. That seems stupid. You would think that Satan would say, I'm, in, I'm going to be back here and you guys go. But he doesn't. He goes out first. So why is he out there leading this group of people? In the He knows. He's not an idiot. He knows how it's going to go down. And when you consider Second Thessalonians 2.8 and Revelation 19.19-21, Revelation 27-2010, it looks ridiculous to do what he's doing. So why does he show up at the Battle of Armageddon? If you figure out why he shows up at the Battle of Armageddon, you're going to figure out why he is at the wilderness with Christ, why he is at uh, Genesis 14.18-24 with Melchizedek Christ. You'll, figure, you'll see him do this over and over and over again. And you'll understand that he's doing the same thing every single time. Obviously, for Satan, the physical death of unbelievers is the ultimate goal. Uh, so we're going to skip a few steps here because we're out of time and ask the final fake easy question of the day. It's not an easy question. It's a fake easy question. Why does physical death, Hebrews 9.27, Genesis 6.16, Genesis 7.16, Hebrews 3.12, why does physical death end the possibility of belief? The door is shut at physical death. That's why those Genesis references, that's the door to the ark. God shuts Noah in. That means he shuts somebody else out. And Now we're back into Romans. He gives them over to a debased mind. And that's the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. Why does physical death end the possibility of belief? Some don't believe that. They think that, that you get a chance after you die. But that's not what the Bible says. Oops. So why does the, why does the door shut at physical death? Why does God do it this way? Fake easy question. Because it ain't easy. It's a complete fake question. Okay, there we go. We're back on the, we'll be back on the 24th of July, assuming I don't fall out of something or off of something.